Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Melissa. And I'm Melanie, and we are very excited to have Professor Michael Klarman here with us today. Professor Klarman is a constitutional scholar and an author of award-winning books on topics ranging from the legal battle for same-sex marriage to the impact of Brown v. Board on the civil rights movement, racial inequality more broadly, and most recently, a history of the nation's founding entitled The Framers' Coup, A Making of the U.S. Constitution, in which he delves into the narrow interests, character attacks, and political compromises that shaped our Constitution. He currently serves as the Kirkland and Ellis Professor at Harvard Law School, where he teaches courses on constitutional law and constitutional history. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Klarman. Thank you very much for having me. We are so excited. So one of the questions that we usually like to start off our podcast with is sort of a chronology of inflection points. Are there times in your life where you made a decision or decided to pivot that really affected where you ended up today? Uh, I can think of a couple. So I decided to go to law school after college, and I decided also in college that I was interested in being an academic, which I think partly was due to the influence of Mark Blitz, who is on your faculty. He was my political philosophy professor at Penn, and I took five different classes from him. Wow. And I think more than anything, uh, that's what made me want to be an academic. I so admired and respected him. Um, my wife and I, about 10 years ago, decided to relocate from Charlottesville. I taught at the University of Virginia uh, Law School for about 20 years, and we chose uh, nine or 10 years ago to try something different. We thought it'd be fun to live in Cambridge. We thought it'd be fun to live further north uh, in a city. And uh, I'm a big Red Sox fan, so I have season tickets. That's how I spend a lot of my free time. So that was a big decision in my life. So uh, one of the things that Harvard Crimson reported when you made this decision to move to Harvard uh, You guys was, did research. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Um, was that uh, Dean Elena Kagan, uh, who was the dean of Harvard Law School at the time, really was um, an active reason in your decision to t transition. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that relationship and how she sort of persuaded you to make the move? I had decided uh, to stay at the University of Virginia. Um, I was very happy there. I'm kind of a risk-averse person. Uh, there were things about living in Cambridge and things about Harvard Law School that made me nervous. I'm not a big fan of winter. Harvard's a really big place. I wasn't sure I could afford to live in Cambridge. I thought Harvard Law School could be overwhelming in a way that Virginia wasn't. So I'd actually decided to stay. So I called her up and told her no thanks. And she doesn't really take no for an answer. <laughs> so she just saw that as an opportunity to bargain. Uh, so she ended up uh, making it very difficult for me to turn the offer down. So I went. Uh, so going back a little earlier in your career, when you were still a student, I'm curious about your time at Oxford studying British labor law. Um, and arguably, that's a counterintuitive path for someone who would become an American legal scholar. So I'm curious, and I think a lot of our students considering a similar path would be curious as well about how your time studying a different um, country's legal system influenced the way you think about American law. So I actually went to England after law school, which is unusual. I only went because I got a scholarship. So somebody was offering for to pay me to go. I had a friend from law school who had spent a year at the London School of Economics, and it was clearly a memorable shaping event in his life. And he really encouraged me to, to do it. So I applied. If I hadn't gotten it, I would have gone and worked for a law firm. And then I would have gone uh, into teaching from there. Uh, but I got the scholarship, so we went to, my wife and I, we weren't married at the time, but we were together. Uh, we went to Oxford, and it was just one of the, I think we both think it was one of the greatest times of our lives. We, we traveled, we had friends from all over the world, we didn't have kids, we didn't have pets, so we were free to sort of drop everything and go wherever we wanted. 
Um, I studied, I chose, so I was, was going to write a dissertation. I wasn't sure if I was doing a master's degree or, or a doctoral degree, but I thought since the scholarship was paid for, for the British by the British government, I actually ought to do something that was British. I think a lot of Americans <laughs> go over there and use the opportunity to study something American, whereas mm -hmm. I thought it would be fun to study something British. Um, I got interested in history. Um, I was studying a court decision, so it's not like it was unrelated to legal stuff that I was familiar with. But I had done political theory in college, and I was trying something different, and I liked it. And that's how I ended up actually being a legal historian was because of the, the work that I did there. When I came back and I was looking for a teaching job, I actually was presenting myself as someone who might be interested in doing comparative labor law history. And I ended up doing something very different from that. But that's an accident. I mean, lots of these things are accidents. So Virginia, when I started there, had three senior faculty members teaching labor law. And senior faculty members are not always willing to give up their teaching preferences for junior faculty members. So I couldn't teach labor law, but I could teach constitutional law, which is pretty unusual because usually constitutional law is very hard to break into. But Virginia had such a heavy emphasis on law and economics, they actually needed con law. So I started teaching constitutional law, and because I was interested in history, I started approaching that historically, and that's sort of what I've done for the last 30 years. And it's, it's just an accident, like many things in life. Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, so two of the things that you highlighted in that story were sort of the, the teaching element of your position as an academic, but also the research. Um, and that's something that I've heard is sort of difficult to balance those two sort of competing priorities. And I was wondering if there's a way that you approach that that informs your work and how that's maybe changed from the different institutions you've worked with. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. So in today's world, the way that incentives in the academy work doesn't really matter that much whether you're a great classroom teacher. I wouldn't say it's completely irrelevant, but I didn't get an offer to go to Harvard from Virginia because I was seen as a good classroom teacher. It was because I got wrote a book that got a lot of attention. I always thought teaching was important. Um, that might partly be a function of the fact that Mark Blitz had such a big influence on my, on my vision about life, what I wanted to do. Um, I also found that there's not really a tension between the two. I mean, I found that there's a lot of synergy between the teaching and the classroom stuff, that I would get interested in something because I was teaching it. There would be a puzzle that I wasn't sure how to answer, so I would research it. I would come up with kind of a tentative bit of speculation about what I thought the answer was. Then I would teach that. Then I would get feedback. And if it works that way, you end up with a, with a better product, plus the students are you're going to be a better teacher if you're excited and interested in what you're doing. And since I was writing about what I was teaching, that, that, was, that, was, um, that was worthwhile as well. Um, Virginia placed a lot of emphasis on teaching in a way that not all schools do. I went to Stanford Law School, and I would say there was less emphasis on teaching. But at Virginia, there were just, and I think this is an accident, there were just some of the people on the faculty who were the most important people, the best scholars, the people who made the largest contributions, who were also just fabulous teachers. So you were taught from an early stage that there really wasn't a tension between these two. You needed to try to be as good as you could at both. It's a shame that Scholarship is what drives the incentives because on a daily basis, the most important thing we do is what we do in the classroom. Uh, so to focus a little more on your life as an author, um, a little over a year ago, you floated two book ideas, one a history of race and baseball and the other a narrative intertwining the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments. So how did you find yourself drawn toward these particular topics and throughout your career, what has made you certain that a topic would be that of your next book? Um, 
Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think early on, you don't really know whether your ideas will pan out. But after you've been doing it for a while, one of the things that becomes easier is figuring out what to write about. So at the time in your career, when you're trying to get tenure and you really need to write, ironically, that's when it's the hardest to come up with ideas. And then later on, you just don't have time to write about all the things that you want to write about. Um, I've written five books in the last 20 years, and I thought, okay, when I'm done, I'm going to take a little break. I'm going to go back and try to make my classes as good as I can. So I spent this past summer, and I'm going to spend next summer redoing the materials for my constitutional history courses. Those courses don't come with casebooks, so you come up with your own materials, and I've tried to make them better and learn a little bit more myself. Baseball is my big passion, so that's part of what drew me to Harvard. Um, I go to almost all the Red Sox games. <laughs> I went to an Angels game yesterday with a friend of mine in Orange County. Um, and I've written a lot about race, so I've written about the Supreme Court and race. And it turns out they're really interesting, not just stories that are fun, but interesting things to say about why desegregation happens when it happens, why it's successful in some context more quickly than in other contexts? What are the incentives of people who are breaking um, breaking the molds, who are charting new frontiers? So why did Branch Rickey hire Jackie Robinson in 1947? Why did it happen in New York City? Why did two of the New York teams do it, but the third team didn't? Why did you have black players 20 years before you had black managers? Why could you have a black boxing champion 10 years before you could have a black playing baseball? Why was baseball integrated before it was segregated? Why did it become integrated after that? I think there's a lot of interesting things that one can say about it, but I also think I'm just passionate about baseball. It'll be really easy to find research assistance. To elaborate on that for all of our kind of budding academics there, it seems like sort of the, the trick with that one was to find a passion and delve into the details. But could you give us maybe more of a broader outline of what it takes to have the sort of simultaneously the research element of it, but the sort of creative focus that goes into the original thoughts that are your books? So um, one advantage of teaching in the area you write is that it's pretty easy to find out which issues are unresolved and which have been written about so much that you won't have more to say. I taught constitutional law for my first year in teaching, and if you teach constitutional law, you have to figure out how to make peace with Brown, and I think that has two components. One is, why is Brown right? We all assume it's right, but why was it right, and how much difference did it make? If it hadn't been for Brown, would there have been a civil rights movement? If it hadn't been for Brown, could we have had a black president? And I got interested in those questions, and I started studying them. And it occurred to me that there were things that were new that you could say. So the conventional view is Brown inspired the civil rights movement and there wouldn't have been civil rights legislation in the 1960s. There wouldn't have been sit-in demonstrations and freedom rides had it not been for Brown. I thought when I studied this that it seemed to me that there was a pretty good argument that Brown actually made things worse in the South in the short term. Brown actually crystallized resistance. It obliterated Southern moderates. It created extremists like Bull Connor and George Wallace. It put them in positions of power. And that the civil rights movement itself was actually less dependent on Brown than other, other forces. But when the civil rights movement on the street intersected with the resistance movement in politics, you got an explosion of violent resistance, which is what produced the civil rights legislation. That's something that I figured out while I was working on it, but it's also an idea I tested in class. And first it was an article, then it became part of a, a book project. 
So going off of this um, backlash thesis that kind of carries through your studies on race and also um, on same-sex marriage in your book From the Closet to the Altar, I'm curious whether you think there's anything to be said for like, Alison Gash's below-the-radar thesis that um, if you just keep these big social change issues outside of um, very public court hearings, would there be less opposition and quicker um, advancements in you know, minorities' rights, or is it really the backlash that kind of inspires yeah. the initial um, supporters of court decisions to really advocate for what they believe in? That's a really interesting question. I think these are often context-dependent. I don't know that I would want to generalize. So with Brown, there was a big backlash that I think played into a counter-backlash, which is what accelerated dramatic change. Uh, I think there are aspects of the gay rights movement that benefited from going under the radar. So I actually think, I'm not sure this is right, but this is my suspicion, that adoption rights, which turned out in the long time to be long term to be really important, those didn't require a lot of political mobilization because there was nothing in adoption statutes that courts were interpreting that prevented couples, same-sex couples from adopting. So I think you found some judges in the 1980s, early 1990s, who were supportive of gay rights, who could actually allow gay couples to adopt without there being any need to change the law. The law didn't forbid that. And I think that's why you were able to get adoptions, whereas marriage you couldn't get without actually changing the law. Now, the adoptions were really important because once gay couples are raising, gay and lesbian couples are raising children, it becomes very difficult to defend the idea that they shouldn't be married. It's really hard to see how the children could be better off if their parents aren't allowed, allowed to get married. So that was actually a pretty important change that I think happened under the radar. Something similar was happening with transgender. So if you look a lot of these cases that are getting a lot of attention, in fact, when the local community was dealing with the issue, they had no problem. So a school, even in rural Virginia or North Carolina, is perfectly fine accommodating some transgender kid who wants to use a, perfect, a particular bathroom. But then somebody on the school board who has aspirations to run for political office finds out about it, and they determine. And that's often what produces these backlashes. It's not that they spontaneously arise. It's their politicians who have incentives to score points. So that's a lot of the, <clears throat> excuse me, that's a lot of the, um, the defense of marriage laws and the constitutional amendments banning gay marriage. It's Republican politicians in the 1990s or early 2000s understanding that the country wasn't yet ready for gay marriage, that opinion wasn't yet on that side, and they could score a lot of political points by proposing these amendments and referenda and, um, it's a shame that that's the way the system works, but it's not like politics doesn't still work that way. We see it every day. This kind of goes uh, into what you're here to talk about today at the Athenaeum, which is your new book called The Framers Coup, which sort of uh, like what you did with Brown v. Board of Brown v. Board of Education sort of critically looked at the prevailing view and offered kind of a revisionist history of the way the Constitution was adopted. Could you give our listeners a little bit of a summary of your thesis and maybe highlight some of your favorite parts? Sure. Um, so my view, it's right to call it a revisionist view, but I don't claim a lot of originality for this interpretation. I hope in some ways I put a kind of sharper edge on it, and I'll explain that in a second. But there has been this idea around for a long time that the right way to see the Constitution is as a kind of conservative counter-revolution against forces for democracy and redistribution that were set in motion or accelerated by the Revolutionary War. I agree with that. But I think there are two puzzles that historians who've taken that view haven't sufficiently focused on, and I've tried to 
fill in that gap. So to me, there are two puzzles. So the Philadelphia Convention did two things that were different from what most people expected or probably wanted. They shifted power more dramatically to the national level from the state and local level, and they introduced a lot of mechanisms to constrain the influence of populism on the national government. And I'm asking two questions. Why would the Philadelphia Convention do this thing that was different from what most people anticipated and probably wanted? Why is the Philadelphia Convention, in a sense, unrepresentative of what the country wants and believes? And then second, and I think in some ways the, mo the more interesting part of the puzzle, how do they get the country to approve something in a reasonably democratic ratifying process that's different from what people wanted and expected and is actually addressed toward constraining the influence of ordinary people on the national government? Why would ordinary people vote for a constitution which is going to almost by definition restrict their ability to influence the government? So I came up with some explanations for why that might have happened, and that's where the title comes from, the idea this is a kind of coup against what public opinion wanted. Yeah, um, so one of the points that you raised with that was that this was sort of unexpected, but I know the way that I was taught it, especially in high school, was that this was the natural reaction to sort of the failures of the Articles of Confederation, that they decentralized power too much and that it was obvious that the, that the system was broken and the natural solution would be to shift more power towards the national government. So what's sort of missing in that narrative that your book uh, sort of outlines? Yeah, you had an impressive history course in, in high school <laughs> if you covered all that. So there are two different ways to see the Constitution, and the right way is some of both. Uh, the Constitution's a response to obvious flaws in the Articles of Confederation. The national government doesn't have taxing power. It doesn't have power to regulate commerce. It doesn't even have power to effectuate treaties, which are clearly within its power to negotiate, but then it can't force the states to comply with them. If states don't like treaties, they just ignore them. So in that sense, the Constitution's a response to probably a consensus view that the Articles are not working. But the Constitution's clearly something else as well. And the strongest piece of evidence is Madison says this. He says it at the Philadelphia Convention. He says, what really brought us here more than anything else is what's going on in the states and the injustices of state legislation. And what he means by that, in an era of really economic collapse, the state governments are trying to raise taxes to pay off their war debt, and there isn't a lot of currency to pay taxes, and farmers are going bankrupt, right? There, there's less demand in the economy because the armies are no longer in the field. The United States has been shut out of trade with Europe. So the economy is doing badly. Taxes are going up. There's little currency to pay. And mostly what you're doing with these taxes is you're paying people who hold the government debt, but it's mostly a bunch of speculators who bought up the debt from soldiers and suppliers of the army paying 10 cents on the dollar. So farmers are losing their farms by the thousands in order to pay off these speculators who are going to make a killing if the taxes are, are actually collected. They turn to their state governments and they ask for relief. And the state governments generally provide the relief because the state constitutions were written in such a way that the state governments are very responsive to public opinion. The elite, the framers, people like Madison, Hamilton, Washington, they don't like these relief measures. They think it's an official form of theft. You're taking money from creditors and you're redistributing it to debtors. And they diagnose that the problem is too much democracy. State legislatures are too responsive to ordinary people. Right? You don't have property qualifications for voting. You have frequent elections, direct elections, small constituencies. So the solution is a little bit less direct democracy, and that's where you get the Constitution. So it's both, but if you had to prioritize them, I'm going to go with Madison and say the latter was actually more important. 
Uh, thank you for that in-depth retelling. I think a lot of us missed out on in high school. Um, but before we let you go, we want to uh, ask you a question that we traditionally ask our guests toward the end of the podcast, which is, uh, what is your personal definition of success? And when you think about it um, from the perspective of a lot of us 18 to 22-year-olds still in college, um, how should we be thinking about success? Yeah. Um, so I think about this differently than if you had asked me the question 20 or 30 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago. So I think then for me, success was something like becoming a law professor, being well-regarded as a legal historian, teaching at a school where you would have the luxury of teaching really bright, energetic, enthusiastic students, um, certainly, and some measure of personal happiness in your life. So I've got a terrific spouse and four kids and lots of friends. I think that's important. I think more in recent years, it seems to me what's really important is what you do for other people and what you do to make the community better. I mean, we're all only here for a limited period of time, and I think it's important for everybody to feel like you've touched somebody, you've made their life better, and you've made your community and your country better. And that seems especially important to me. And my brother, who does a lot of philanthropy, also thinks that's really important. And it's become especially important to me in the last year or two because of what I see going on and how horrified I am by it. I think, you know, I never thought in my lifetime that we'd be experiencing the sort of things that we have been in, in politics, a president who I think genuinely does not believe in basic democratic norms, a president who can't simply condemn neo-Nazis and fascists and just leave it at that. And I think people don't necessarily understand. I think it's hard for people your age who don't have this wealth of experience to realize how abnormal this is right now and how much of a threat that democracy is really under. If you look around the world, you see what's happening in the Philippines, Turkey, Hungary, Poland, you can see even more of that. I don't think we're necessarily destined to have a democracy. I think it might be something that we actually have to fight for. I could see massive voter suppression coming. I can see you know, New York Times reporters perhaps getting thrown in jail. Uh, the president encourages violence at his rallies. I think that's a terrible thing. I think elections, the legitimacy of elections is something that the president questioned. So I, I don't want to make it partisan, but that's where I see the threat. And I actually, in a way, it's invigorated me in a way that I wouldn't have been before. But I'm not doing this so much for myself. I could retire and go to, move to Great Britain and have a perfectly great life, except I'd have to give up baseball. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, we, we need to do something to defend our country. And there are lots of different ways people can do that. But just more generally, I mean, to me, it's as rewarding to spend two hours writing a letter of recommendation for a student because I feel like I've had all these opportunities. I've accomplished everything I want. So now what's important is to make, I try to make my students' lives more interesting by being a good teacher. I try to promote their opportunities by writing letters. And I think as you get older, you start to think about that sort of thing more. So success is some combination of personal and professional, but the professional and the personal can both be seen as trying to do things for other people. My wife reads psychology literature. People are mostly happy when they feel like they've done things for other people rather than for themselves. So obviously there's a balance that you have to draw, but at the end of your life, I don't think you want to say, well, I'm a Harvard Law professor. I've been successful. I want, think you want to say, did I make the world better? And have I done things to make people's lives better? So. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, sure. Professor Klarman. And to all of our listeners out there, remember to stay hungry.